Shalom, and welcome to Ezra International's It's All About the Aliyah. For over 25 years, Ezra International has been helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people return home to Israel to fulfill their biblical destiny. Hi, I'm your host, Gary Christofaro, and for the next 30 minutes, we're going to explore all things Aliyah. Today, we're going to focus in on a prophecy made 2,700 years ago by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 16, verses 14 through 16, says this, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. I'm going to pause here for a moment before we go on to verse 16. Because I want you to, to think about what Jeremiah just said. He said a day would come when the reputation of God would change. For thousands of years, God has been known as the God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Every Passover celebration, we mark that it's a memorial to that very event. God with an outstretched arm and, and mighty power and, and miracles brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. When we look and read how the Ten Commandments begin, God didn't say to Moses, I'm the creator of the universe, you shall have no gods before me. He said, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt you shall have no gods before me. Then thousands of years later, when Paul was addressing his brethren in Antioch, he recaps this same thing and says that our God brought us out of Egypt. So God has been known for this mighty act for thousands of years, and Jeremiah is saying that something has to happen, or something will happen, that will change God's reputation. Same God, now a new miracle. Now for this miracle to, uh, to exceed the scope of the exodus from Egypt, it would have to be pretty remarkable, would it not? Think about it. What would be easier to take a people from one nation and move them to another, or to scatter those people to the four corners of the earth, and then bring them back one person at a time, one family at a time, over the course of hundreds of years after Israel had been destroyed and missing from the earth for almost 2,000 years. Now, the promise we, we remember from Abraham was eternal, and we always should have known that Israel would be reborn and they would be back. But think about that scattered throughout the world and now coming back, it is remarkable and it is happening right before our eyes. And the scriptures that speak about it are hidden in plain sight in scripture. We should be aware of it. Unfortunately, many people are not. But it's happening today, right before our eyes. And then Jeremiah goes on to say about this regathering, he says, Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and from every hill 
and out of the holes of the rocks. Okay, so Jeremiah is using some extraordinary imagery here to tell us what was going to happen in the days ahead. And if Jeremiah was to assume that we would know what he was talking about, this analogy had to have some clues or hints in Scripture, I would think, and it does. Remember, this is all about his story. History is his story, God's story. And I can find a, a uh, order in the chaos that we see around us in the world today. To answer the question of how the, uh, the things that are happening around us kind of have a, have a, have a tie, have a, a thread that holds them together or, or connects them or helps them to be related, I think we have to look at who the hunters are. Who was Jeremiah pointing to? Because there is a lot of chaos in the world, is there not? There's a lot of things happening that seem disconnected, seem independent of one another, and yet I believe through looking at the hunters, Jeremiah's picture here, we can find a common thread. All right, so the question would be, who was the first hunter in all of Scripture? Well, that would be Nimrod. In Genesis 10:9, he is described as a hunter. But Rashi and the Torah commentators believe that this was a figurative description and that he was a, a man who ensnared men by his words. And he incited them to leave God, to rebel against God. Now, that's an interesting take. Is it supported? Well, it is by the um, historian Josephus. Josephus says of Nimrod that he formed a government and, and, and led it into tyranny. And seeing no other way to turn men's hearts from God, but to bring them into constant dependence on his power. Wow, does that not sound familiar? Making people dependent on you as a leader or a government, um, taking full control, and, and having them forget about their love and dependence on God. Now, I can think immediately comes to mind uh, tyrannical governments um, like communism, fascism, all socialistic type of governments, dictatorships. Think about them. They, th these um, totalitarian systems take away people's freedom and choice and make people dependent on the government. The, the industries, the, the, all the businesses are owned by the government and therefore uh, people become completely dependent. So I look at Nimrod as the father of the progressive movement today and all totalitarian governments that have come ever since. Think about the now what happens in these systems. We have history to support what I'm about to say. You have a government system controlled by a man or a group of individuals fully in control, and the economy historically inevitably suffers. When the economy suffers, often the Jewish populations are blamed. When the economy suffers, often leaders lead their nation into war, sometimes as a distraction, sometimes as a result of the economic turmoil. But in both cases, the Jewish people of these nations 
become the scapegoats. They take the blame and the brunt for what is going on. Now, I believe that same spirit exists today in in totalitarian governments, and we see it. I have seen it in countries that I have been in, and we, we receive reports from our representatives about that type of behavior. Um, in fact, I just saw recently in Ukraine an article that spoke of the police gathering the names of the Jewish population in one particular city. Uh, it, it doesn't bode well for the Jewish people in these situations. Now, these things are only a part of the picture. It's a big part of the picture. But I left out one other hunter and another element of anti-Semitism that has risen throughout the globe. And I believe it comes from the descendants of the next hunter we find in Scripture, and that is Esau. Esau was also described as a hunter, Genesis 25, 27. He was also described as a man who lived by the sword. And we find that in Genesis 27, verse 40. In addition, he married the daughter of Ishmael. And Ishmael was described as a man who would have his hand against every man and every man against him, Genesis 16, 12. I believe that prophecy points to the descendants of Esau. Who are they? Well, today, predominantly, the Arab population is Muslim. They subscribe to the tenets of Islam. So, not well, let me be clear now. Islam does not find its roots all the way back to Abraham and Ishmael and Esau. There's no way. In fact, it was created in the mind of Muhammad in the 7th century AD, hundreds of years after Jesus walked. And uh, it, there's no connection to Abraham in that regard. They claim that there is now, but it is untrue. So, but the tenets of Islam, we find these anti-Semitic, um, this anti-Semitic behavior through the point of all the way to the point of Islamic terror throughout the nations. So, what I'm saying is that because of this this thread or hint that we have from um, Jeremiah about the hunters, we now have economic turmoil, eventual economic collapse, economic chaos and collapse, war, an ancient hatred that has was developed or uh, has been passed on all the way to today, and the Jews take the brunt. They are the ones who get the blame. This is an anti-Semitic um, uh, thread that runs through all of this. Now, I want you to, uh, I don't want you to just take my word for it when it comes to this ancient hatred and the descendants of Esau. We have the biblical evidence in Scripture. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, and he was the first to attack the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Do you remember that? Have you read that? Go back and look. Right after the Exodus, Amalek attacks Israel, grandson of Esau. Now, a descendant of Amalek, we read in Scripture, is Haman. And if you're familiar with the story of Haman from the book of Esther, he wanted to annihilate the entire Jewish race. This is what's meant by an Islamic uh, or an ancient hatred that has been passed down to Islamic terrorists. 
those who subscribe to the radical um, terrorist ide ideology that is found in Islam. Okay, so what is this? What does this have to do with the Aliyah? Well, as I mentioned, all of these factors, economic turmoil, eventual collapse of governments, war, this ancient hatred, anti-Semitism, they are all what I call a push factor, a push factor. You see, Jewish people, for the most part, many of them anyway, have this um, like a homing bird, a homing pigeon spirit, if, if you will, that at some point God says, come home. Just as he told Abraham, go to a land I will show you, and Abraham made the first Aliyah, so too his descendants have this, uh, this place in their heart that God ignites or, or awakens and says it's time to come home. And many of them have, and many of them will continue to move on this unction, okay? But then there are others who need a little push, and sometimes more than a little push. What I mean by that is in the former Soviet Union, for example, uh, they, the, the Jewish people grew up with no connection to their Hebraic root, to their Jewish root. It was an atheistic, atheistic society, and they many didn't have rabbis or synagogues to go to, and so maybe they've lost a bit of a connection with their roots and be, have become very comfortable in the nations that they're living in. What I mean by comfortable, it's all they've ever known. I spoke to many uh, Jewish people that came out of the war zone in Ukraine. You remember that war? For six years now in the Donbass region, the border between Russia and Ukraine, there has been a war going on. When it first broke out, uh, especially from 2014 and the following few years, our drivers were driving into the war zone at the risk of their own lives and pulling out Jewish refugees. When I say refugees, I mean they came out with the shirts on their back. Everything had been destroyed by the war. In fact, I interviewed uh, some of these, these refugees in a uh, facility that we were renting. It was a fish camp along the Dnieper River. We were renting it so that we could house them, clothe them, and feed them while we were getting them ready to make their aliyah. Uh, a, a beautiful work to, to help these individuals who were hopeless. And in fact, one woman comes to mind that came to me as we were visiting the camp, and she had tears running down her face, and she said, I can't believe there are people in America who actually care for us here in Ukraine. She said, I had lost all hope. We lost everything. And she was hopeless. And because of Ezra International, and thanks to the donors of Ezra International, she now had new hope. She began to smile again and said, I'm going to Israel. And you know, I interviewed many of these same folks in Israel sometime later. And do you know, not one of them, not one, not a single one, said that they had any intention initially to go to Israel. They thought maybe at some point retiring and maybe Israel would be an option, but not one had planned to make Aliyah in their current situation. Ukraine was all they knew. But the war happened and changed everything. The war changed everything, and that's what I mean by a push factor. All of these 
items that that I spoke of, the idea of no hope in the economy, nothing to no 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 good jobs, uh, struggling financially. The, they're in stark dire poverty, um, and then there then war thing, things like war happen, or Islamic terror that is sweeping uh, throughout Europe, as even as we speak, and unfortunately uh, in, in all countries of the world. So this anti-Semitism and war and things of this nature are a push factor that pushes Jewish people away from the nations that they're in and back home. So I believe God is the order in this chaos. He's using these things to make sure that his people do get home. Okay, so this is why I believe the hunters gives us a clue as to what Jeremiah was talking about. All these things are happening in our day, the day he spoke of when the Jewish people would come home. All right, let's pause here. Let's go to a commercial, and when we come back, we'll talk about the fishermen. Anya's family managed to escape the Nazi massacre at Baba Yar in Kiev, Ukraine. They fled, yet the Nazis found her relatives, made them dig a pit, and then shot them. Anya's mother had given her eight-year-old sister a piece of paper with a non-Jewish name on it saying, this is your name now, forget your old name. That name saved the girls' lives. Now, however, because of that non-Jewish name, it is very hard to prove the family's Jewish identity. This is where Ezra International shines. Christians come alongside Holocaust survivors to help them with this legal process and advocate for them. A gift of $30 a month for a year can rescue a Holocaust survivor like Anya, restoring them to the land of their promise. Time is short. Go to EzraInternational.org and send your gift of hope. Okay, before the break, we were talking about the hunters of Jeremiah 16, 16. Now we're going to focus in on the fishermen. I think it would be a pretty easy question to answer if I were to say to you, who were the most famous fishermen in all of history? I would hope that you would say the disciples of Yeshua, or we know him better as Jesus. His Hebrew name is Yeshua. But his disciples, I'm absolutely convinced that the, the uh, volunteers and the representatives of Ezra International are true disciples of Jesus. Why do I say that? Because they go and humbly serve Jewish people in these nations they work in, many of whom say to our representatives, you are the first Christians to ever show kindness to us. Wow, is that an indictment on the church? And of course, we're talking about uh, churches like the Russian Orthodox system that is very anti-Semitic, replacement theology type church. Um, maybe we'll, we'll address those things a little bit in another episode. But the first individuals to show kindness to these Jewish people who are Christians are the Ezra representatives. And the Ezra Ezra representatives also are the first to show 
these Jewish people that they have the right to go home. They tell them that they have the right to go home based on a couple of things. One is the Israeli uh, right of return law, but that right of return law, I believe, is based on the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Romans 15, 8 says that Jesus became a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Well, isn't that what our representatives are doing when they speak to the Jewish people and say, you have the right to go home? Are they not reminding them of the eternal promise made by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants? It's exactly what they're doing. So I'm talking about fishermen being true disciples of Jesus. What do true disciples do but emulate what Jesus did? It's not what would Jesus do, it's what did he do? He became a servant to the circumcision, the Jewish people. And that's what our representatives and our volunteers are doing, becoming humble servants and showing the way, helping every step of the process of Aliyah through document research and transportation and just flat out serving Jewish people as they make this, uh, make this process, or go through this process. And then Matthew 25, verse 40, speaks of, well, it's Jesus' words, saying that when you do this to the least of these my brethren, you do it unto me. Now, I know that that passage and this, this narrative here in Matthew 25 has been used uh, for, for the last, uh, you know, 1,700 years maybe to speak about um, serving the poor. But I will, I will submit to you, based on the judgment of Joel chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and then the uh, words of Jesus saying that this would come as a judgment of the nations, that Jesus is speaking about his literal brethren here. And maybe that's another topic we'll explore in another episode and show you the context of Matthew 25. But by helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people, we are helping the least of these Jesus brethren. And in Romans 15, uh, Romans 15 8, serving them as Jesus became a servant. So this is what disciples do. You see, Abraham Joshua Heschel said, the categories of the Bible are not principles to be comprehended, but events to be continued. How true. You know, the, the words and the, the categories of the Bible are not just for head knowledge. They're not just for us to fill our understanding without doing. We are to read these categories, read these words, the scripture, and understand then how we can continue like the disciples to do the will and purposes of God on the earth today in our generation. That's what Ezra International is all about. In fact, here's another way we understand that, that we are disciples of Jesus. Jesus taught us to pray. In fact, we, you know, we talk, we call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer instead of the disciples' prayer. Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray and teaching them what is important. Now, we read it in our English Bibles as Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But according to Nehemiah Gordon, uh, the Hebrew version of this prayer, which was found, better translates from the Hebrew to Our Father in heaven, may your name be sanctified. Jesus was teaching us to pray, may your name be sanctified. 
Well, how do we sanctify the name of God? God gives us a wonderful clue in Ezekiel 36, verse 23. Ezekiel 36, go back and read it, is speaking about uh, the return of the Jewish people. It talks about the return to the mountains of Israel. And then he talks about the fact that the Jewish people being in the lands, the nations in the world, become mocked or God becomes mocked because they're not home in Israel. These are the people of God, yet they're out of the land. And, Jesus, and God says, not for your sake, Israel, but for my holy name's sake, I will bring you back. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 23, he says, I will sanctify my holy name. It's the only place in scripture where he says that specifically, that I, God, I will sanctify my holy name. There are other events, things that people will witness as, for example, um, Ezekiel 28, 25 says the Gentiles will witness this and sanctify his holy name. So it's related. But God says, I will do this. I will sanctify my name. So if we want to align ourselves with his purpose so that his will is done in heaven and earth, as the prayer states, and we want to sanctify his name as Jesus taught us to pray that we would be able to do that. We can align ourselves with God's purpose and his plan and do what he says he would do by sanctifying his name, by helping his people get home. Does that make sense? It should. It's, we don't have to get on our knees and wear, uh, wear out our, our, the knees and our pants trying to beg God to show us his will and his purpose on the earth today in our generation. It's very clear. His purpose is to bring back his people to Israel. And in, in doing so, sanctify his holy name. See, according to the, the Hebrew sages, we only have two options. We can chadush Hashem or chalul Hashem, which means we can sanctify his holy name or we can desecrate his holy name. When we do his purposes on the earth, we sanctify his name. When we work contrary to his purposes on earth, we desecrate his name. And even our inaction can desecrate his holy name. Why? Because if we call ourselves children of God, and then we don't do anything with the knowledge and understanding that we have, then we desecrate his name. You see, I think it's important that we are active in doing what we're called to do, the purposes we're called to do. And the reason for this program is to explore all things Aliyah so that you will know you'll have a better understanding of what God is doing in our generation and you can become a part of it. So I'm going to invite you right now, once again, to become a part of it. You can go to our website, ezrainternational.org, and you can explore what we're doing. You can learn how to better pray for us. You can begin to give, just as my wife and I have for for many, many years, even before I worked for Ezra International. I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I'm not already doing. By giving $30 a month, over the course of a year, you will bring one Jewish person home. The average cost to bring one Jewish person home is $360. So you can give any amount, no gift is too big or too small, but by giving, you become a part of the purposes of God in bringing his children home to Israel. That's an exciting time to be alive, is it not? 
God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. And I look forward to seeing you again next time.